Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I am so excited and blessed to be here and to be able to teach this very chapter today. Wow, the Echad, the oneness, the fivefold ministry. There's so much in this chapter. Let's dive right in. We see, therefore, I, a prisoner for the master, I urge you to walk in a, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Ruach in the bond of Shalom. So we're at this very, very practical application section of the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. We're no longer really in the theology and the doctrine, but now it's boots on the ground, a very practical application addressing the circular, and this, of course, being spoken to the Ephesians. Because of this great calling on the, the um, community's lives, and if you're listening to this, the great calling on your lives, we've had, because of that great calling, great privileges bestowed upon us, have we not? Because of the calling in my life, I've had great privileges bestowed upon me. And in turn, those very privileges, they carry with them solemn responsibilities. Solemn responsibilities. So, the true gospel formula is this. Calling plus privileges equals great responsibility to be found worthy of our calling. Not calling and privileges equal Christmas. That's not the gospel formula. But how many to today, especially in this season that we're coming on, that's what it's about. But that is not the truth. That's another gospel. That is another gospel. Think about privileges, responsibilities. I think of the cyclist. I used to cycle a lot. Lance Armstrong. Think of Lance Armstrong. He was undisputedly a talented, a talented athlete. In fact, he was even like an ambassador. He was an ambassador for the sport of cycling. And to the outside world, Lance Armstrong was a great a great champion. But in the end, all that work, all that training, all that glory, all that recognition that he got from men, it led to what? It led to his own self-delusion. And he was found, in the end, unworthy of that calling, was he not? Why? Because he simply could not obey the instructions and commandments of the tour. He simply could not obey the instructions and the commandments of the tour. And he was willing, unwilling, I should say, unwilling to lay down the doping traditions that were inherent of the sport. Squandered life. A squandered life. So too, a believer... A believer can have undisputed talents. I've met many a believer with undisputed talents. They can even be an ambassador for the faith. Even to others, they can seem holy, devout. And in the end, all that church going, all those daily devotionals, all those Wednesday night Bible studies, all of that stuff, all the recognition that they get from fellow believers in the church and in the denominations can all lead to what? Self-delusion. Same thing. And they will be found unworthy of the very calling if they're not willing 
to simply obey the teaching and instructions of the Father and lay down the pagan traditions that are inherent within the denominations. It's no different than Lance Armstrong. And we suffer the same symptoms within our congregations. But the true gospel formula is calling and a privileges equal great responsibility. It's not the journey. I know many people say, well, it's all about the journey. No, it's not the journey. But how you're found at the end of that journey that matters. Will you finish well? Will you complete the good fight? Is it going to be broad or is it going to be narrow? Is it going to be small or is it going to be wide? Are you going to be worthy or are you going to be found unworthy of all the gifts and callings that you burnt along the way to your own self-delusion? Because you simply couldn't obey the simple instructions and commandments that were laid down by the Father, in Lance's case, the Tour de France, and you were unwilling to lay aside, in Lance's case, the doping traditions inherent of the sport, in our case, the pagan traditions inherent within Christendom. It is time to get real in this day of delusion that is upon us in these next months that are abounding wherever we are. Look what it says in verse 4. There is one body and one Ruach, just as you also were called in the one hope of your calling. One master. There's one faith, one immersion, one Elohim, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, if that's not a verse about unity, the echad, the unity body of believers, I don't know. But we have to be careful not to rip this right out of context. Because in verse 4, we actually find a very early creedal formula. In fact, in its first century context, this is the formula to the one new man or the commonwealth as Israel as you and I know it. It's the one new man or the commonwealth of Israel calling. It's not some grand 21st century ecumenical unity where we can all sing kumbaya and stick coexist stickers on the back of our car. That is not what this is calling. This is not about flying your LGBT flag or your Christian Zionist flag of the state of Israel and all coming together. No. This is about the one new man of covenant Israel redeemed and restored through the Messiah, Yahushua. Because we know that Paul was opposed to false doctrine. Of course he was. He was opposed to immorality. He was opposed to lasciviousness. At every single turn, he opposed these things. So you can't just get along the unity bandwagon and not stand for righteousness. I mean, he would turn in his grave. Paul would turn in his grave at the ecumenical twaddle that is being sermonized by the archbishop in St. Paul's Church in London, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, if you'd ever listened to some of that twaddle that's being preached. It's awful, absolutely awful. Our faith is supposed to be inward, but the holy days that we keep, the Sabbaths that we keep, are an outward manifestation of the inward change. And of course, mikvah, ritual immersion, is the great sign. It's the great public display and witness to the reality of this creedal formula today. Now, as we continue on, you're going to find that there is, in this oneness, this echad, there's strong echoes, of course, of the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Something not inconsistent with Paul's other writings. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 4, it says this, There is none other Elohim but one. 
1 Timothy 2.5, there is one Elohim and one mediator between Elohim and men, the son of Yahuwah, in fact, Yahusha, the resurrected Messiah. In 1 Corinthians, with that echad, that one formula, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, it is written, Yet to us is one Elohim the Father, of whom are all things and we to him, and one Master, Yahushua the Messiah, through whom are the all things and we through him. Now, I want to focus in on this term, all things, or to whom are all things. The Greek word there is paz. And in the Septuagint, that word is used for El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And is also used for the Tamid offering. The Tamid offering of the daily sacrifice because the Tamid offering and El Shaddai were what? Where all things would be present and represented before Israel and the priesthood. So when that Tamid offering would go up upon the altar, it represented all things for Israel and the priesthood before El Shaddai. Does that make sense? So you can see the connection in the language between, in the English, of course, whom are all things, the Greek word paz connecting to the Hebrew word El Shaddai and the Tamid offering, which encapsulates, excuse me, encapsulates all things that represented Israel before El Shaddai. So this isn't divorced from the commonwealth of Israel. In fact, it's very, in very connected together at the very inception point. Let me give you an example. Malachi chapter 2 verse 10. Have ye not all one father? Did not one Elohim create you? Do you see this echad one formulae throughout scripture? Why have ye forsaken every man his brother to profane the covenant of your fathers? So, in context, the one or the echad formula is about one new man being restored to covenant, the book of the covenant, and therefore being able to offer up all things before El Shaddai. That's what he's talking about right here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Look at verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Messiah. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. And he gave gifts unto men. That, of course, is the famous verse that we have all come across many, many a time. But look at verse 9. Now, what does he went up mean? Except that he first went down to the lower regions of the earth. The one who came down is the same one who went up far above all the heavens in order to fill all things. So look at verse 7, 8, and 9, and 10, and we're going to see that the context of these verses, in fact, is Psalm 68, verse 18. Now, I'll read it to you from the Septuagint, and then I'll read it to you from the Masoretic text. Septuagint, Psalm 68, verse 18, which is our context Thou art gone up on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts among men, yea, for they were rebellious, that thou mightest dwell among them. Now the Masoretic text differs slightly, 
Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received tribute of men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the master Elohim might dwell among them. Slight difference there. Now I'll give you the NNT translation. That's the New Nolanite translation. Thou hast become an Olah and have released the captives. You took gifts in the man for the rebellious also that thou mightest dwell among them. So my my personal favorite is the NNT, hands down. The New Nolanite translation again. Thou hast become an Olah, an ascension offering, and have released the captives. You took gifts in the man, Moshiach, yea, for the rebellious also, that thou mightest dwell among them. I will give the King Jimmy a run for the money any day with my new Nolanite translation. (laughs) But you know, people do accuse our our brethren, oh, you just Nolanites. Give me a break. No, we're scripturalites. We like to get into the word and dig. And that means we're mining for souls. We know that Yahushua came as an Olah, did he not? He came, the Olah is the Hebrew word for the ascension offering, to ascend. Of course, Yahushua did come as an Olah, an ascension offering, having released the captives in the paradise section of Abraham's bosom. Yahweh accepted and received the gifts contained in his son alone. Contained in his son alone. Previously, he'd rejected the gifts, hadn't he? In Psalm 40, verse 6, Yahweh rejected the gifts, but now he receives the gift contained in his son. There's a distinction and a difference that has to be noted between Messiah's Yahushua's work and the work of the Levite priests in Psalm 40, verse 6. The gifts are accepted in the son, even have the ability to do what? They even have the ability to cover the rebellious. Think about the thief on the cross. Because of the gift contained within the son, it was even able to cover the rebellious, the thief on the cross. Because there is none, none too lost for the son. That's amazing. In fact, you can look at the Hebrew verb. The Hebrew verb lakak, lakak, can mean take to or for a person. For example, you can fetch something. I can go and fetch something, right? But then I can later distribute that to somebody. So I can go and retrieve it and then distribute it. So the Hebrew ver- verb lakak means to fetch, but also to distribute. So, lakak in context can mean to give or to take, right? First, I retrieved it, I took it, and then I'm going to redistribute it to give it. So, it can mean both things contextually, and this is what we'll see as we discover this word, lakak to give or to take, when you consider the very act of what this verb is communicated. In fact, this is really amazing. This just blows my mind. In the Targum on Psalm 78, it says of Moses this, quote, You ascended to the firmament. O prophet Moses, you captured captives. You taught the words of Torah, you gave gifts to sons of men, and even the stubborn who are converted turn in repentance. And the glorious pretense of the Lord God abides upon them. Now that's the Targum on Psalm 68, which is telling us 
and giving us a lot more information. So in context of what's happening here, Paul is actually using a psalm that was well known in the context of Israel, a psalm that was clearly attributed to Moses' ascension. But when did Moses ascend, people? He ascended at the giving of the book of the covenant, did he not? So here Paul is using a psalm that is clearly attributed to when Moses ascended up at the giving of the book of the covenant. And now Paul is using that very psalm and he is attributing it to Yahusha and the New Testament book of the covenant reality. The profundity of this is a mind bomb if you can grasp what I'm saying. If you can connect this back, this is a mind bomb. Because Paul is clearly communicating something. He's saying what Moses failed to do when he ascended on high to lead captivity captive, those very principalities, when he was delivering the book of the covenant, and he stood there on the firmaments of the heaven. Paul is attributing that very psalm that's attributed to Moses to the resurrected work of Yahusha. He's saying where Moses failed, how did he fail? Because those principalities manifested themselves in the congregation of Israel and enticed them into idolatry and sexual immorality at the golden calf. And what Moses failed to do Yahusha has been able to do. The gift that Moses gave, the book of the covenant, that the principalities warred against and in fact enslaved the children of Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality. Yahusha has overcome those principalities and the gift of the man, he can now give the gift of the book of the covenant, blood ratified to a new covenant community. And Paul clearly links the psalm with Moses and then re-attributes it to the work of Yahusha. And why don't we see that? So to me, it's a mind bomb. And that's why I'm spending the time on it. Because link it back and it's all right there. It's amazing, Psalm 68. Especially when you look at the Targum on Psalm 68, which Paul's audience would have been very familiar with within the context of this writing. It's amazing to me. Paul's usage in verse 7 of the text of Psalm 68 which is attributed to events connected to the book of the covenant mountain in the past, is brought into the present, in fact, our day, right here today, which was Paul's future by the ascension of Yahusha and the scene of angelic hosts and victory over principalities. Selah. I get worked up. I really do. Sorry. But the point is this. Yahusha provided a link with the heavenly world that could not be matched by Moses and the 70 elders. Yahusha provided a link with the heavenly world that could not be matched by Moses and the 70 elders. Even, I mean, even down to the finest details of the paved work of sapphire stone, Exodus chapter 24 verse 10, comes all the way forward into our prophetic future, does it not? And where do we see that? Of course, Revelation chapter 15 verse 2, when we're singing the song of Moses. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm just connecting the things that we like to buzz through and run around doing pagan nonsense to. And therefore we will be found unworthy of the calling. If we do such a thing, 
It's time to wake up. And it's all right there. The Bible is the dictionary for the Bible and the language within the text connects to other parts of text that reaffirm and confirm the redemptive work of Yahushua bringing us back to a book of the covenant reality all the way down to the final victory over the angelic hosts and are standing on the sapphire glass in Revelation 15.2 as the elect saints that get this message in this final generation singing the song of Moses. If that doesn't cement in the book of the covenant reality, and then no one can help you. I, I just don't know what to say. Moshe distributed. Remember I said the context of this very verb is what? Retrieving, yet being able to distribute. That's the context. Moshe distributed Yahuwah's gift of the book of the covenant to Israel. Did he not? He retrieved it and then he distributed the gift of the book of the covenant to Israel. But the covenant was later thwarted by fallen principalities. Influencing man through sexuality and idolatry at the golden calf. But now, but now, Yahushua, having disarmed principalities having set the captives free and securely sitting at the right hand of the one Echad father, secures the book of the covenant, giving it as the ultimate gift secured in the man, in him, something that Moshe could never secure in himself. Can you see that? Can you see that? Four people can see it. My work is done. (laughs) Hallelujah. The question that many of us have asked, well, okay, well, who are the captives? Well, there's two views on who are these captives. Number one, Yahweh's enemies. And number two, the second view, is the righteous dead who were in the paradise section of Sheol, Luke chapter 16, verse 22. Now, what is meant when it is said, he descended? He descended. Now, there's four views on this. Number one, Yahushua descended at his incarnation, at his birth. That's the first view. Number two, he descended at his death and burial. Number three, it's actually talking about his descent into Sheol following his death. Or number four, the Holy Spirit being poured out at Shavuot. So those are the traditional views, be that as it may, on he descended, the four traditional views there. But look at the context of this in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 22. For a fire has been kindled out of my wrath. It shall burn to hell. It shall burn to hell below. It shall devour the land and the fruits of it. It shall set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Sheol or Hades or the world of the dead. It's like a subterranean retreat. Would you like to go on a subterranean retreat, my friend? Which includes accessories with inmates, the grave, the hell, the pit. That's the definition. Just added a little flavor for you. But, I mean, people, Judaism, many in Judaism say, oh, well, we don't believe in hell. That's a Christian doctrine. Oh, well, uh, What about Korah? I mean, Numbers chapter 16, verse 22 is the epitome of hell in the Torah. 
How can you say there's no hell? There's no Sheol or Hades. Look at Numbers chapter 16 verse 22. And the ground opened and swallowed them up their houses, all the men that were with Korah and their cattle, and they went down all that they had had alive into Sheol or Hades, and the ground covered them, and they perished from the midst of the congregation. Pretty succinct, I think. Not that there is, of course, hell. Yes, remember Korah. What about Psalm 63, verse 9? But they vainly sought after my soul. They shall go into the lowest parts of the earth. So Sheol is actually under the earth. It's the underworld. It's where the reptilians dwell. Graves were actually built as sepulchres above the earth. So it's not talking about graves. Because graves were built as sepulchres above the earth. The dead were put into tombs. They were put into caves. Sheol is called the underworld. Because it's in the lower parts of a hollow earth. And it has a portal. And its portal is the Euphrates River and the Antarctic firmament. Regions that are totally off limits, guarded by masses of troops and government entities. Think about it. Isaiah 14 verse 9, Hell from beneath is provoked to meet thee. Sheol, the abode of the disconnected spirits of the dead. They cannot return to Yahuwah because they have become so foreign and lost to him. They've got nowhere to go but simply to roam and await judgment. Tormented. Tormented to traverse the underworld awaiting some unsuspecting fool who picks up on their trickery by deciding to go to a clairvoyant or pick up a Ouija board or some kind of black arts. And then what happens? The portal opens and then their soul is betrayed. Forever and ever those generations will be enticed by the deceptive delusion of the occult. Serious stuff, is it not? Even when I was lost as a kid, I mean, he knew me, he chose me, he formed me as you before we were in our mother's womb. I didn't come to know him when I was 24, but I tell you what, when I was a kid, if anyone put a horror movie on, I was gone. If somebody brought out on a Ouija board, I, was, I would leave the premises. I, no way. I knew I would never mess around with any of that stuff. No stinking way. I didn't know anything about it, and I didn't want to know anything about it. Because he already knew me even before I knew him. And I just have to think of the guard that he's had on my life. But those that have succumbed to that, the huge inroads and portals that are opens is so devastating that it is so hard to come out of. So hard to come out of. Romans chapter 10 verse 7. Or who will go down into the abyss, that is, to bring Messiah up from the dead. This is known as the harrowing of hell. Or Christ's triumphant Descent into hell to claim his own. First Peter chapter 3 verse 19. Through the spirit he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. So Yahushua made known his victory over death and Sheol to the specific rebellious Nephilim who rebelled with the watchers in Noah's day. Those Nephilim who are awaiting their time of release upon the whole earth 
in the apocalyptic future of Revelation chapter 9. And if North Korea's got anything to do with it, it will be upon us very swiftly. In fact, the Apostles' Creed of old says thus, Yahushua suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. That's the Apostles' Creed. I don't know if they would have spoken it like that back at the vicarage, but they should have done crying out loud what about ecclesiastics chapter 9 verse 10 (laughs) i don't often get to say that word i'm not allowed to say it at my house even though i've tried to debate with my wife and say it's just a garbage pit south of the gates of jerusalem where they would burn the garbage it's not a bad cuss word please can i say it don't you say that in front of the children (laughs) so there you have it I've got to get it out while I have holy ways of getting it out. Ecclesiastics chapter 9 verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all strength. For there is no work or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Is Paul suggesting... Is Paul suggesting a transition point occurring? I mean, Yahushua's descent into Sheol and the subsequent ascent into heaven with the righteous saints or captives? Because before Yahushua was raised from the dead, it's clear and apparent to me, hopefully to you, that no one had ascended into heaven. No one. Even the apostles and the prophets assumed that everyone went to Sheol or Hades, even if there were two sections. So did Yahushua's resurrection change this? Is Paul using the language of transition when he speaks of Messiah taking the righteous out of Hades and bringing them into heaven in verse 8 and 9? These are good questions to pose. Look at verse 11. Now, as we get into the next section, but that's a lot to ponder right there, is it not? Because remember the verse, no one has ascended into heaven, but the Son of Man who has descended. So at that point, where was the prophet Isaiah? Where was Daniel? Were they in heaven? No. So the only option is that they're still not in heaven, in the grave, awaiting the resurrection, or or is Paul talking about some kind of transition point at the resurrection? These are good questions. Campfire questions at Sukkot should be delved into. But let's go on now to the fivefold ministry in verse 11. And he gave himself some to be apostles, shlechim, some to be prophets, Nevim, some as evangelists of the good news, and some pastors and some teachers to equip the saints, the Kedoshim, for the work of service, for building up the body of Messiah. Of course, this is the famous fivefold ministry. And to really do this justice, we need to spend more time than I can give today. But To set the foundation, we really need to restore a biblical understanding of what these roles and callings mean. Because churchianity has corrupted it so much that an apostle is this highbrow religious office. When in reality, the first apostle was the raven sent out for a specific purpose. That's what apostle means. The second apostle was the dove, sent out for a specific purpose. So let's look at these offices. Apostles, they govern. Prophets, they guide. Evangelists, they gather. Pastors, they guard. And teachers, they ground. That's a very simplistic view, but it's very true, is it not? Apostles govern, prophets guide, evangelists gather, pastors guard, 
and teachers ground. Very solid, very solid understanding. So let's look at the apostles. There are at least three categories of the apostles. Number one, Yahushua, of course, is the chief apostle. Number two, there was the original 12 that Yahushua appointed, minus, of course, Judas Iscariot. And number three, importantly for you and I today, the subsequent sent out ones in each successive generation including your generation today. So apostles, they are spiritual pillars. They lay foundational truth. They have strength. And they are deeply and firmly rooted that the pastors and the teachers can lean upon them. They are spiritual pillars that lay foundational truth in people's lives. Apostles, though, Apostles don't fit into denominational hierarchy. They don't like it. They can't freely function in their role within the structure of committees. That's not what they do. They have vision. They are visionaries. And they don't want to sit on a board of committees because they are too visionary for that. And they are too equip the teachers and the pastors and be able to help and guide and form. They will not sit around with elected leadership and denominational red tape. No. They undergird, they build their visionaries. Prophets, on the other hand, they reveal Elohim's heart To his people, they give guidance to individuals, they give guidance to the body, they give revelation as well as often interpretation, application, and timing is everything. Timing, very important on timing. Evangelists, they don't necessarily have to go and put a sandwich board downtown and start handing out tracts. That is not effective. That is not what evangelists do. Because a true evangelist carry the burden for those who aren't part of the kingdom of Elohim yet. They have an anointing to preach the gospel that comes, of course, with great conviction. That draws others to Yahushua. Often they'll even show signs and wonders to confirm their message. That's what we see with the evangelists. Now, pastors, this is interesting, because pastors, their role is to care for the sheep, or shepherds is another term, but pastors are to care for the sheep. They want them to be fed, of course we do. They want them to be equipped to develop their giftings and to step into the calling of Elohim. But the problem, the problem with the role of pastor is that because of a lack of understanding on the part of the sheep with regard to the other four offices, the pastor often has to fill the shoes that were not theirs in the first place, creating tensions in the congregation because they couldn't meet, they weren't supposed to meet all the sheep's needs. And so then people get hurt And they move on to greener pastures that just end up being a sow's mess. That's the problem. It's because the sheep are not understanding of the fivefold ministry and it all gets thrust onto the pastor. Now, teachers, they reveal the specifics and spectrum of the revealed truth having a literal guard set upon them by Yahuwah for teaching and edifying the assembly. Teachers impart divine life and anointing to their listeners who become more hungry for the word of Elohim as the teacher is supposed to illuminate scripture to the sheep and bring forth truth never heard by the listeners before. They're supposed to be gifted with inspiration great insight and great foresight. It's only going to be when the Malkitzedic anointing permeates all of the people's hearts will the assemblies truly, truly 
come to what the head, Yahusha, meant his assemblies to be. Where all offices will be in place, functioning properly. And that is what we need to see. We need to see that so the burden doesn't fall upon a few, but it is shared with the many. Because will we truly come into the full Malkitzedic priestly maturity and have the ability to fulfill the book of the covenant requirements that's laid out here in Ephesians chapter 4? Because that is the commission, the great commission that the master gave us to make disciples of all nations doing the same works as he did and even greater works as this Malkitzedic anointing goes out to the nations. So to truly fulfill the fivefold, we need to be focused on five things. To truly fulfill the fivefold ministry, we need to be focused on five things. Number one, missions. Now, this is an example of not what to do on missions. I think we have something for you. Hi guys, Quinn and Kylie here. We are so excited to announce our next trip. It's a mission trip. Our next mission trip. We are going to serve humbly the scuba instructors here in Aruba. We are so honored. So honored. A lot of you guys have asked, why Aruba? Yeah, we actually came here on our honeymoon. Yeah, and we were out on the pier having the sunset dinner. I was about to pick up the lobster and dip it in the butter. And we so just good. looked at each other and we just felt like God had called us for, for such a, a time, time as, as this. this. We've had so many God moments you while being here. Believe the cabana boys, oh, the golf caddy, yeah, the parasail guys. I had a heart to heart conversation with the guy I rent the jet skis from. Oh, babe, I want to hear about mm-hmm. that. So good when, when in moments like that, we just know that we're here for a purpose, yeah, for but sure. We can relate to missionaries all over the world when we say it hasn't been without its share of persecution. Yeah, like last week we were prepping to do the scuba dive yes. and I was wearing my cross necklace like tell I him, always do. Tell them what the instructor said to you. And the instructor looked me dead in the eyes and said, ma'am, you need to take that necklace off. Take it off. And I said, I will not. I will stand for what I believe in. Get behind me, Satan. Right, but come to find out the necklace actually would block the airflow of the mask so I had to take it off. It makes it. He was helping you. But yeah. at the time we did feel I felt attacked. Persecuted. Honestly I feel like a lot of what we're doing down here babe is planting seeds. We yeah. haven't seen much harvest but we know that the Lord is at work. It's kind of like we're a living version of footprints in the sand. Except two sets of footprints had turned into zero. That's where we laid down the sunbathing. sunbathing. Yeah. Like the other day I was shopping for some supporter gifts for all of you. So good. I was looking at these keychains made by real orphans and I was about to have a moment with the cashier, with the cashier lady. And you were going to witness to her. I was going to witness to her, but we had dinner reservations. Yeah, it was not the right time. But God's timing. Back. Wherever we go, in the shops, at the car dealership, we wear the WWJD bracelets. I actually lost mine. Anyway, we just want to ask that you would partner with us and invest with us here in Aruba long term. Long term, but really for only three months because after that it's rainy season and my hair gets frizzy. So Okay, yeah. we feel like maybe after the three months God is maybe going to transition us out of Aruba. Don't spoil it. And we're going to be witnessing to the wine connoisseurs and vineyard owners <laughs> of Tuscany. But that's another video that's and another outfit. Yeah, totally I haven't even finished my Pinterest board. We need to be here and now. We t- I talked with our all we need is $10,000 a month. Basically what we're uh, saying is that we want to ask you for prayer. Well, pray that God would ask you to give us your money. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to give. We just ask if you think about us in prayer after you've given, just ask that we would daily pick up our cross. Oh, room service. You know what I'm saying? Just it's No, I said extra caviar. No, fix that. Where's the Prosecco? What am I supposed to drink? Cut this part. No, get out. Stuff, but you know, missions. I think we have one more. I got one more. I've got another one too, because this reminds me of back at Calvary Chapel when we would do missions down in Mexico. All right, first things first, I'm going to need everyone to wear this awful neon colored t shirt 
everywhere we go. Because what's the point of serving in a third world country if people in America don't know we're doing it? We do not have time to help that lady with her bags, okay? The mission doesn't start until we get to the country. Does everyone have their passport? We are splitting up guys and girls. Y'all cannot sit together on an overnight flight. Absolutely not. Does anyone in this group speak any Spanish at all? Nobody. Okay, perfect. Day one is going to be a rest day, okay? We need our rest. Day two is going to be a shopping day, all right? Your grandparents and aunts and uncles have paid a lot of money for you to come down here. What better way to say thank you than some crocodile earrings? No, you cannot buy a djembe. How are you going to get that home? Day three is a Sunday. We're going to go to church, all right? This is a super amazing church we're going to, but we're not going to understand anything because it's going to be in a different language. Does everyone have their passport? Day four, you guys, is when we really get down to business. We're going to paint a school. Are there skilled painters in that country that could probably do a better job than us? Yes, there are. Does this country have high unemployment and they could probably use the work? Again, also true. Was this school painted last week by the mission team that came before us? Again, yes. But that's not important, okay? We're going to paint the school and we're going to get some photos to send back to the church. I swear if one more person loses their passport. Listen, guys, I understand things are going to be difficult. We're going to get tired, but we must never waver from our goal to get photos with minority children for our Facebook profiles. Oh, it's a crazy world, isn't it? Missions. Yep, we've all seen it. We hopefully have not been a part of it, but again, some of us have. And I'm just thankful to uh, have grown and come out of that because truly, when we look at the fivefold ministry, we do need to be focused on five things. And missions is important, but not that kind of mission. So let's look at these five things that we need to be focused on for the fivefold ministry. Missions, of course, in the Tanakh. What is, how would we see missions in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament? They would drop wells. They would drop a well. Abraham would go and he would drop a well. And he would name the well after an attribute of Yahuwah. And then when the traveler, the sojourner, the pagan was dying in the desert, he came and he found sustenance, he found life, the living water, and he would find and inquire, well, what is the name of this well? And therefore, that was the mission of how Yahweh evangelized in the Old Testament was through the dropping of wells and the glorification of his name. Of course, we see through the Tanakh, the whole Old Testament, missions is with letters and scribes sending out teaching, sometimes for edification and sometimes for judgment to the surrounding community. The letter, which was a circular to the Ephesians, was that part of missions for sure and for certain. Jeremiah and Baruch, were they involved in missions? Yes, for a specific purpose. We have to understand this from a biblical frame view, and then we won't get caught up in silliness and tomfoolery like that. So here in this ministry at Torah to the Tribes, for us today, we look back to Jeremiah, we look back to Baruch, we look back to the Apostle Paul and what was happening, and we go, how can we steward missions? What are we doing? Right now we're doing it. We are investing in getting the message out to the nations. And we do that through what resources that we have, the internet community. So for us, it is about going out and stewarding missions is spreading the message to the nations through the internet, through the website, through our community fellowship finder that people can sign up to and find other people around them. We can host various um, internet chat sites which are Bible studied focused. And of course, the biggest mission for us at this ministry is come to the three ascension feasts that we will host. And that is a time of outreach and gathering. That's what we should be doing today. So for us, we've invested a lot of time, money and resources into reaching out just as if Baruch had 
multiplied himself in the deliverance of the message of Jeremiah. We've got to get the message out. It is far more important to invest in the internet community because you can reach so many more people than you can by going to a foreign nation for a week or two and painting a house. Right? So we have to be wise stewards with the gifts that we have. Number two, schools. Schools. We need to invest in schools. How do we do that? Right now, your wife is next door teaching the children. We need to invest and encourage parents to homeschool their children if at all possible. We need to be able to offer advice and curriculum and provide that if necessary for parents so that they can teach their children and educate their children. We have weekly teachers and a whole schedule here of the school here at Torah to the Tribes. And over the past couple of years, we've remodeled and expanded the classroom to twice the size so that we can be focused on the education of the next generation. Very, very important. Number three, we must look out for the poor, the widows, and the orphans, but we must do it with dignity. That's extremely important. None of this, hey, if you're poor, widowed, or an orphan, could you come to the front and we'll give you a 10 spot? No. What we do is just like in the Tanakh, you glean from the corner of your fields. When it's dark and nobody's looking, we give with dignity. So here at this ministry, we give out gift cards for food, gas, whatever, and make sure that people are taken care of. But you have to understand that this is all about gleaning from the corner of the fields. Number four, meeting halls. We need an assembly. So yes, we do have an assembly building where we can meet and we support of course, and structure this year at Sukkot by having a big tent, making it better to ingather more. Of course, this is a very important. And the fifth thing is making sure that we have got administrative and leadership functions available, and of course, that that is supported through the fivefold giving of the ministry. So when you see ministries selling books, selling downloads and selling DVDs. This is anathema to the fivefold ministry. Now, Torah to the tribes, we used to sell downloads. And I was convicted about it. And we don't. We give everything away. And you know what? We have had a multiplicity tenfold in blessing financially. Since releasing that and going, no, we are going to be a ministry based upon tithes and offerings. And that is all stewardship. And it has been liberating and set us free from what? Marketing and all of that nonsense. Because like I say, many a time when I was in the Messianic movement, the only time that teachers would be coming together was to sell their books, DVDs, and wares. And that was it. And that is not how the fivefold ministry operates. True ministry builds by giving. We build by giving. Financial stewardship with our handling of the tithe and the offering. We should be able to afford, all of us, to come together for the three annual pilgrimage feasts. If you're being a good steward with your tithes and offerings, you should be able to afford to come together for the three annual pilgrimage feasts. And if you're being a good steward with the tithe and offering, you should be able to support ministry Because that is the goal of the one-man building. By giving, saving, and living in that order. And there's no such thing in Scripture. I don't know where people get this idea. There is no such thing in Scripture of tithing of your time. It's not yours to give. Yahweh is the one that gives us time. Every breath we have 
is a gift from Yahuwah. I don't get to tithe my time. Where do we even get? We get that from this drivel gospel message that permeates our nation. And it's not true. And it is anathema to the fivefold ministry. In fact, what happens is people withhold the tithe and they justify it with that kind of thinking. And it does not build up the one new man. And I know some people really are living on $200 a week. And I know there are people out there that really are living on $200 a week. But if a person isn't, then tossing $20 into the pushki isn't a tithe, is it? It's not. Certainly not a tenth of all. And that's just the starting point of stewardship, is a tenth of all. That's just the starting point of stewardship. The reality is 10% of people support, 90% of people don't. And that's across the board. And I've got a pastor in the front, front here nodding his head because you know it's true. And that's a sad commentary on our culture today. 10% of people actually tithe. 90% of people reap all the benefits of other people's good stewardship. And they wonder why they're in trouble in their lives. Because this fivefold ministry and personal responsibility hasn't been communicated. And you know who the most vocal people are? The misers. The 90% are always the complainers and the most vocal people out there. They're your bishlams. They're your tabils. You know those guys that were the counselors in the days of Ezra? that complained, and they thwarted the building. That's those. And we need to address this because it's extremely important. If we're really going to do the fivefold ministry, we need to do it actively with our stewardship. Give, save, live. Because we need people to understand that today time is pressing And we have the opportunity to reach the global nations. But it doesn't happen if one man is doing all the work. If people expect me to do things that I'm not supposed to be doing, that I'm not gifted in doing. It's not my gifting to do dozens of things that I have to do. But over the years, I've had to step into some of those shoes because we haven't put these things in place. Now is the time. Now is the time for the growth, the expansion, and reaching the nations. And this is what's exciting. Because we are seeing tremendous healing in people's lives. And tremendous things happening with missions. At the pilgrimage feasts of Yahuwah. It's the Sukkot we had this year. Now we're coming up on Passover and unleavened bread. And then we'll get together at Shavuot. These are times when we should be gathering and doing the work. So it's exciting to me. Let's look at verse 13 and we finish up here the end of the chapter. This will continue until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of Elohim, to mature adulthood, to the measurehood, the measure of the stature of Messiah's fullness. As a result, we are no longer to be like children tossed around by the waves and blown around with every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men with cunning in deceitful scheming. And that's what I used to see in the Messianic movement. People would go on from teacher to teacher. You're into this doctrine, that doctrine, because there was no congregational accountability. So if you're a teacher that's just traveling from congregation from congregation and you're just supporting yourself by selling your books and DVDs, how is that going to help people? It's not. 
You're not building community. You're not building a one echad. You're not enabling people to go out and do the things within the fivefold ministry. And that's why so many people fall to the trickery and the deceptions in this day and age. Because they're not coming together in the community which is under the fivefold ministry administration. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all ways into Messiah, who is the head, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. And again, silver is the currency of man. Yes, we are to tithe and we are to do it diligently because ultimately when the children of Israel gave and tithed toward the building of the tabernacle and you and I are the tabernacle and we're supposed to be that fallen tabernacle of David that is being raised up. It was the silver, the currency of man that held the people together, the building boards together so that it could stand. And that's what Paul Paul's addressing. He's addressing this to the communities, and today we get to bear the fruit of that in these last days in this great nation that no longer is as great as it once was because people have walked away from Yahweh's teaching and instruction, and instead they have become self-deluded with all the paganism that they can reject the simple truths of Scripture. So today, in Ephesians 4, I'm trying to give us concrete nuts and bolts, nails and tacks, roots of language, taking us back to the origins of our faith, because with that, we're not deceived. And we can stand, and with all and all, stand as one new man. And that is what he's addressing to the Ephesians. So to me, this is so powerful in the building of the saints and the equipping. And we get to do it not only here, but also online to those out there. So, Father, we thank you and pray that this time would be a blessing to those here and abroad, Abba. And we ask that the anointing of your word would continue to permeate our very lives in Yahushua's mighty name. Amen. Amen.